Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Lisa Snyderman, who's also known as Aedi. She's an award-winning San Francisco-based artist, playwright, author, and filmmaker living with dermatomyositis. And she's got an upcoming free summit uh, that's going to be happening that is a two-week event of free resources and talks with different people in and around the chronic illness community. And she's going to tell us all about that, too. So, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It is such an honor to give you a platform to share your story. And there's lots to talk about. So let's dig right in. I would love for you to tell us how you first realized that you had something going on and what steps you've taken to control your health since your diagnosis. Great question. There's there's a lot there. So I'll try to explain some of this. The best way I can do it is say, picture yourself. It's six weeks before you're about to get married and about mm-hmm. to go on tour, and you unexplic- inexplicably come up with a rash on your hands and have very red, painful nail beds, and mm. you go to the dermatologist thinking they're going to give you some sort of a topical cream, mm. and instead, he gives you this diagnosis, this unpronounceable diagnosis, and refers you to a rheumatologist, oh, and wow. you're, 30, 30, you're 35. Wow. So that was me in 2008. I was on mm. go, go, go. Didn't even really know that that pace and, and that way of life was mm. something that would have such an impact, you know, on, yeah. on me in the future. And as far as what initially started, as I noted, as a, um, a rash eventually spread to my muscles, which became, you know, so weak that I um, had issues, you know, moving and things like that. And so mm. to deal with the steps I took to control my health initially were a lot of Western medicine, physical things. So uh, things that would help my body uh, and mobility, things like drugs and infusions, uh, and also things like diet and supplements. And then I also was uh, trying a little bit of Eastern alternative medicine so that I could avoid having to take immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of my life. Uh, And then I supplemented with physical therapy and a little bit of pool rehab. But I want to just note at the onset that almost everything was all physical. It was all intended to help my body. And that's a big thing in my story, as as you'll kind of see, is that focus on the physical is what a lot of us seem to go through, especially when we're in kind of what I call the the, uh, surviving phase, right? So... um, I tried, you know, different tech techniques and, and um, things like energy balancing, which helped perhaps minimize some of the triggers for inflammation, but they didn't halt or slow the progression of the, the uh, muscle part of the disease. And I was also on seven to 10 different immunosuppressives over my wow. treatment to, you wow. know, try different things. And, you know, it, it's always kind of a roller coaster. That's what I say. So mm. I've navigated, battled and made peace with my illness. It's dermatomyositis is um, basically a progressive muscle weakness disease that also attacks and weakens my immune system. So if I'm not treated, it could result in me being bedridden or or worse. And in fact, in 2010, my biggest um, issue is that I had a flare of my I call it DM, so we don't have to keep saying dermatomyositis. Yeah, DM, I like that. (laughs) DM. And it resulted in me being in the hospital for almost a month 
with mm. complete muscle weakness. I couldn't move my muscles. And coming out of that, I had to undergo rehab in order to learn how to sit, how to stand, how to walk, and eventually how to replay my instruments and sing again. So wow. it was a whole process of not to mention what your career and, and your identity here is like completely in question because your body stopped working. Exactly. And that mm. was the other thing is that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of physical changes and that's a transformation, but there's also the mental transformation that mm. happens. So, you know, what's happening is I'm questioning my purpose and my identity and my faith, what my contributions are, the value I have, right? My worth as a person, let alone as a disabled artist now. Mm. Uh, and so this is like I say, all this was kind of my darkest days. Uh, when I went from complete independence to dependence. And for many months, I required home care from bathers, physical occupational therapists, you know, would come to the house. Uh, people like my friends and family would have to shuttle me back and forth each month to infusions to the hospital. And I'm relearning a slower baseline that involves wheelchairs and walkers and canes and ramps and soft food and shakes and shower benches. And the reason mm. I mention all of it is because I kind of went from, and I realized this more recently that this is also part of my story, is going from surviving to thriving. Mm. And so I say, if I, you know, somebody says, what's, what's your story? I say, well, I'm Lisa Snyderman, right? I'm, I'm an award-winning artist and I live with a rare chronic illness and I've been creating obsessive for about 12 years to express and heal. That's how mm. I see myself. But the other part of my story is that I'm also uh, a light in the darkness in that I wanted to take my experience and be able to help others who are living with illness and facing similar challenges. So I've added to my story now that I also have gone from surviving to thriving. Yeah. So I say that because what happens when you're in this place of, you know, mental despair or whatever it is, is you have to do something. And so for me, I compulsively threw myself into my music, hmm. into writing, into playing, and eventually, you know, recording, connecting with fans, anything I could do to kind of express. And then later I learned to avoid the darkness. Hmm. Now, there's something really cool about fully launching yourself into creativity and nurturing that place. Um, for me, it's my go-to place. It's, you know, the place where I know that time stops, hmm. you know, and it's, it's like, if you've been in that creative space, it's kind of like you're, the illness goes away for a little while. It's not that it goes away, but you're not focused on it, right? right. You're in the place of what they consider flow. Hmm. So, and I also kind of, can see that I'm still an artist. Like I, all those things happen in my creative space. Hmm. And so there's something, you know, beautiful about that creative space. Um, but that was, you know, one thing in a whole suite of things that have sort of helped me get from surviving to thriving. Well, you know, I discovered that there, um, that in 2016, when I was living with DM for more than eight years at that point, it hit me that I had never really processed my illness. Hmm. And perhaps because I was hiding behind this. So there was an element of denial. Artist. There was an element of, I want to just play in the creative space, right? I don't, I, that's fun. And I don't have to necessarily think I can disassociate like my creative space. I was writing musicals. I was creating, you know, fantasy and things that weren't necessarily related to dealing with the day-to-day -day experience of my disease. Except this is ironic, and I have to share this, that even while dealing with the, writing the musical, I realized that my themes were light and dark and that they mirrored my struggle. Of course. Wow. Of course. But I didn't know that. And I'm kind of happy that I didn't know it during the time because it would have colored that experience for me a little differently. You know, instead, I was just feeling the gratitude and the empowerment and the, you know, for me, um, going outside my comfort zone is actually really enjoyable. I'm doing it now with a project that I'm working on called the Grieving Project. And that I'll explain that a little bit more in that in addition to not processing my illness, I also forgot to grieve. And so I went from being diagnosed and dealing 
dealing with denial and things. That was a little bit of grief, I guess. But dealing with that to managing, I didn't really process in in an emotional way what was happening. Yeah. Did you have so, like emotional, like mental health support in place well, during that time, or no? no? I mean, realistically, I find that Western medicine is good at certain things, and we can get to you know this later. But yes. that Western medicine is great at acute care, mm. you know, things that are like if you're almost dying or something and you go in, you want your practitioner to be the one who's at the head, right? Mm. It's not necessarily the people who are going to say, wow, you need to be holistically thinking of yeah. your nutrition and your mental health and your relationships and your intimacy and mm. your, right? They don't yeah. necessarily do that. It's more like symptoms. It's exactly yeah, what you were saying early on about the focus was just on the physical and not on any of the other planes on which you exist as a whole person. That is kind of what I'm feeling, right? So yeah. going back, you know, so when I realized in 2016, I hadn't done this, I had a yearning to be part of something bigger than myself mm. and to give back. Mm. And so I had a desire to write and share my own story and to use my gifts to encourage and inspire others. And mm -hmm. so I ended up writing my memoir that was called A Light in the Darkness, Transcending Chronic Illness Through the Power of Art and Attitude. Which we'll, and, we'll have a link to that on the website uh, for this episode on the webpage. Oh, wonderful. And that is an inspirational story of the healing power of music and creativity, mm -hmm. following your dreams, finding your purpose. And it answers a central question, which is, what do you do when you're struggling with an illness and disability that doesn't go away? Mm. So yeah. that's pretty much, you know, takes me um, probably to about 2018. Mm. <laughs> and now I'm going to stop and let you. Uh... <laughs> no, no. It's, I mean, it's amazing. I, I'm curious to know with DM, um, is it something that progresses over time? Um, and do you have to sort of do continual upkeep? in terms of not just the physical, but also the emotional impact that it has on your life? Yeah. So DM mm. is an incurable disease. It's an auto, rare autoimmune disease. And mm. they estimate something like six out of a million people in, wow. like, in the United States get it. Uh, and you need to treat it. So you need to treat it for life. It's so mm. their remission is possible for certain people, but I've been dealing with it for 12 years. So mm. it's not something that I'm just going to have to deal with it. And here is an example. When I had my flare in mm. 2018, I was managing the best I could on my current treatments and then eventually opted to do IVIG, which is a gamma globulin infusions. And it's pretty intense in that you're there five days in the month because it's a slow infusion. And it's intended to help regain your strength and stamina and energy because it's antibodies. So it's a positive thing in that you're getting like donors from thousands of people give the plasma and then they source this gamma globulin, which is all these great antibodies. And then they put that inside me. Now the idea is that it gives me a fighting chance by giving all new antibodies because my disease is attacking the muscle cells. So by giving me a whole bunch of new antibodies, the hope is it won't attack or it will slow the attack. So the reason I'm mentioning it is I made the hard decision in March to stop the treatments because of COVID. And wow. that's a big thing right now. So I am managing my own health without some of the medical interventions. And I'm relying more on things like diet. I have been seeing a functional nutritionist and changed a lot of, you know, how I have my relationship with sugar, for example. I was that's um, a tough one. <laughs> I have not, well, I'm, I'm, I haven't had any sugar, refined sugar for almost 10 years. So that part yeah. wasn't new. But I didn't realize that all the fruit that I was eating and all the carbs that I was eating were actually also inflammatory things. Yeah. So, you know, the combination of supplements and nutrition has been helping me manage while I'm not on these interventions. Mm. So that I, I, you know, I say all of this by way of saying it's a management for life mm. and you have to do everything you can to keep things quiescent right? That's yeah. the thing. So there are times in my journey where I feel like I'm on the up of the roller coaster. And there's other times when I'm really low and need things like these, you know, IVIG treatments. 
Hmm. So it's going to be a constant rebalancing act, it sounds like. And that's, I mean, in, in a sense, that's actually really great because it it forces you to be in a position to be fully aware of yourself, your body, your existence on another level, you know, of awareness, right? That you're forced into this position of, okay, I really have to pay attention and take care. And so often what happens when we get diagnoses like this, these life-changing diagnoses, is that we realize that we weren't taking care of ourselves the way that we could, you know, and these diagnoses can make that change. Absolutely. You know, the extreme one for me was going from go, 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 go to nothing. Literally, my body was like, if you're not going to stop, I will force you. Yeah. You know, and, and it, and it didn't allow me that, that flare where it was like, Mm. boom, that lowest point was also obviously the point to grow the most from, because that was like, wow, what really matters? Kind of like now where we're in this place of the pandemic and everybody is kind of in a whole new, not only headspace, but everything around us is different. Well, we have opportunity you know, that's how yeah. I see it. We have opportunities here. What kind of world do we want to live in and create for ourselves? Yeah. And I think it's also that idea that like, when you hit rock bottom, the only place you have to go is up, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> you can't go any further down. So only place to, to go is up to grow, as you say. I'm wondering also during this journey of self-discovery that you uh, went through once you were diagnosed and you were diagnosed very early on, which is an unusual thing for us to hear on the show here. Did you discover that you needed a personal advocate at any point in this journey back to yourself? Because it sounds like you had been newly married or just about to be married when you were diagnosed. Did your husband play a role in, in recovery for you? How did that look, that advocacy uh, journey in terms of having an advocate or did you become your own advocate throughout this? So I've always been my own personal mm-hmm. advocate, but I had definitely rely and appreciate and have so much gratitude for my support system around me. And in mm-hmm. my case, I have a, a beautiful, you know, pillar of a partner who, in my spouse and somebody who's been with me through all of it. And, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing in that, uh, he's always been either at the appointments with me or wanting to learn. Like we went to a myositis uh, conference one year after I was out of the hospital. They asked me to perform and tell my story. And one year later, it was I was still in a wheelchair. I still had really low strength. And for me to actually do like a 30 to 40 minute presentation took everything out. And he was right there with me in Las Vegas at the time. And so were my parents. They uh, showed up at the uh, conference. And so having that kind of support and in the hospital, having friends and, you know, people and family around, I, I, I always say I don't go this alone. And I that's one of my recommendations to people is always find a support system, whether it's going to be your friends, your family. And if you don't have that close, then a therapist or online support. I mean, we don't do this alone. Yeah. Don't operate in a vacuum. Absolutely. So can you tell us what a typical day is looking like for you at the moment? I know, as you mentioned, you made the decision to stop some of the infusions you were on. And so you've been more focused on holistic options during this pandemic. Um, And I'm wondering how you're balancing the demands that your body puts on you while maintaining a career. So keeping an eye out for symptoms, how are you making it all work? So my biggest thing, number one, the hardest parts of living with DM for me are acknowledging and accepting that I have limitations. (laughs) Meaning it's like coming to terms that I'm not in control of my body anymore. And I can't just do what I set my mind to. And that's important to actually be okay with that. My new normal is always having to choose. So for Mm. people familiar with the spoon theory, which a lot of us are either spoonies or understand, it, it relates to the reduced mental and physical energy available to me each day. Uh, and it represents like what I can do and live with. So as an example, can I shower or do my stretching? Can I play songs on my uke or fold laundry? Can I conduct this video interview or prep dinner? 
It's always having to mm. choose. And I, and I just want to acknowledge that because that's a big thing for a lot of us is that some people who don't live with chronic illness do it all. They, you know, my husband, when, especially when the pandemic was not present, would go out to his day of work, right? He'd have a full day of work. He'd go grocery shopping afterward. He'd cook dinner. He'd clean up. You know what I mean? It was like, he would Which just is already, all, like, that's already so much to do. I don't know how I did it right. before, let alone now. Right? right? It's yeah. like the energy, like in my case, energy is so big. So I have so much awe and respect and appreciation for people who have the energy, you know, like, I'm like, okay, if I have it, I kind of spend it in spurts. Um, but the answer to the, you know, the $100,000 question you asked for me is naps, 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 just nap. Yes. I have to, I literally just took a nap right before our call. <laughs> I took and one earlier this morning. I'm so with you. <laughs> so, I mean, and most of us do this, we can't function, you know, now most of my naps are not necessarily what I would call restorative rest is not restorative, but yeah. at least it gives me a little more, I guess, than before I went to sleep. I don't know. Mm. You know, my friends and, um, Dave and I, we kind of joke that my life is firmly cast in jello. That's what I say. And what it means that. is the reason I say it like that is I, my heart may be into something, but it's really hard to make commitments. Mm, so yeah. I say jello. So if somebody says, can you, and again, this is before pandemic. So it's not like a bunch of people are asking me to do things right now, but when people would do that, it would be, hey, you know, we'll, we really want to be there for you, but we'll have to see what the day brings. That's kind of what happens. I don't know what my body will do. Yeah. And I also think that people who don't have chronic illness can really understand the isolation or what it feels like to not be out in the world every day. And that right now with everybody sheltering in place, it's changing. And I think that there's an opportunity here for a couple things. One, for people with chronic illnesses to advocate and help other people ease in to this. That, you yeah. know, it's like a lot of us have been sheltering in place for a long time. Yes. It's okay. You know what I mean? I don't have mental anguish over this. Mm, because yeah. this part you've, is you've had many years to work really through that. Familiar. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, just like if you ask me, you know, a typical day, like realistically, because I'm homebound and I'm here, most of my time is spent because I create is, mm -hmm. you know, on the computer or doing things, you know, like um, right now I'm doing a recording project. What mm -hmm. does that look like? Well, I'm not going to be in the studio. So yeah. I'm doing recordings from home. Mm -hmm. I'm writing, I'm rewriting, you know, I'm doing things like that. And to balance it, I have to take my naps. Now I'll give you a quick story, which is 2018. I interviewed 45 different artists creating to heal, to share their stories. And I did that within a three month period. And on top of it, I launched a book and then produced a live event. Now, all of that on a person who's healthy is a lot. Mm. And I was in a up of the roller coaster, so excited by this creativity, so nurtured mm. that I didn't do what I needed to do, which is attend to self-care and balance mm -hmm. that. Okay. When that happened, my body again, you know, pleaded with me to stop, to slow and then stop. And I didn't. And that's what I think was responsible for the flare that I had. And so it's a real thing to me to say, I need to listen, yeah. you know? And so this time around, when we talk about doing a summit and all of that, now I, it's not that, I, that creativity goes away. It's not like I stop. It's I say, how do I do this and focus on the self-care? Well, for me, it was I take a year to create the summit, not a three months, you know. I do my interviews over seven to eight months, and I do a max per month of interviews I'm going to do. I did 10 a month, and I'm going to do a max of two a day, and that's it, you know, like, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I'm not going to have two projects happen at the same time. Well, COVID happened, and now I have two projects at the same time but oh, man. <laughs> for the most part my choice is I need to have 
time to just rest, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned also earlier on uh, the use of mobility aids, and I'm wondering whether they've had an impact on your independence as well in this. Cause you know, when you were fully wheelchair bound, I imagine that was something where you probably had to have a little more help, but then maybe getting out of the chair, using canes, using supports, that that's maybe given you back some of your independence as well, I imagine. Yes. Yeah, for the most part at home, I can go without aids. And mm-hmm. when I'm out, I use my cane and my walker. So, yeah. my, you know, things like at the park, it's for t- fatigue. Like I have yeah. to sit. Or well, exactly. Like and this is, I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is something that comes up with the use of mobility aids that I think often people think that if someone's using them, it's because their muscles are not working or their bones are not working. But oftentimes, For those of us who are Spoonies, we know, okay, I've got this limited amount of energy today. And if I'm going to be out for the next hour, I need to have a wheelchair. Exactly. (laughs) Right. But it's that you, you don't have enough energy to expend. It gives right. It gives you more to work Mm. with, but you can also perhaps be with the people you love or something, you know, like I used to feel like, oh, this is a burden when I was in the wheelchair more. So I'd be like, oh, it's a burden on Dave or something. And he would look at it as oh, she can join us or what, or join me or, you know, and so it's almost like, wow, you have to also look at this as this is just a tool. That's it. You don't have to like be all Mm. weird about it. You can just say it's a tool and it enables me to get more out of life and, and to be with the people I love. Great. Yeah. And what about, you know, those, those relationships as well with the people who are around you have, how has the, the diagnosis impacted what those relationships look like and how they function. Have your relationships with your support system, yeah, are they deeper now? Wow. Well, the people who are close to us in life, I mean, we've been so fortunate, right? Because I feel like, you know, I'm not justifying my illness for the most part. It's, it's the, if anything, it's like, wow, you look really good. That, Mm -hmm. that all of us have heard that before. (laughs) And somehow we're like, challenged to say something like, yeah, but we're still sick. That's (laughs) not really what we're saying. And we don't say it out loud. But so a lot of times we think that in our head, like somebody tells you, you look well because Mm. they want you to be well. And they, are they gaslighting me? (laughs) Well, did they get me at the Mm. point? They don't, what they don't always realize. Let me put it this way. They they're always well-intentioned. It's that what they don't realize is that when they leave, I'm going to have to go to sleep. Mm. it's not like you know I have this this thing that's like oh I'm better I'm better you know what I mean you're always going to deal with the illness and so they're very well intentioned that's one thing but on the other hand I have amazing beautiful support system and when we're not in a pandemic people would come (laughs) over and here's the example is they know what kind of energy I have and they Mm. Don't even ask sometimes. They just pick up the dishes if we had dinner and they yeah. put them in the other room so that Dave can get a break or I don't have to do that, you know, because that means also more quality time that we can mm. spend together rather than spending my energy on doing something like that. Mm. Or they bring food. I cannot really, tell you how many like times it, during. Yeah, No, during infusions, you know, Mm. people know how wiped out that I get during that week. So at the end Mm. of the week, you know, we had a friend who would come over and she would just bring food, Mm. you know, and like something like that was really nice that you, you just have a lovely support system, you know. And it sounds like they've reinforced your sense of community as well, which is something that, you know, has been coming up a lot with the pandemic because people are feeling like they're suddenly without community and isolated. It is so hard, right? I mean, we've got our Zoom and I'm definitely appreciative of having Dave here, like Mm. Dave and I together. There's people who are living alone right now, you know, and their only sources are like, either if they go out, if they, you know, if they can go out and grocery shop or do something like that, or mm. uh, these online means, you know, yeah. and it, it does, it's like, wow, we really took our personal and, you know, in-person times together for granted. I yeah. feel like, you know, cause all of a sudden things changed so quickly and it was gone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned also when we were just talking about these relationships, the idea of having to justify your illness to other people. And I'm wondering whether you found yourself in situations where, aside from people maybe not understanding, were there any incidents or, uh, you know, um, confrontations that you have had 
in which someone has just denied the existence of your illness entirely when you've had to explain yeah, it to them? See, I am really fortunate in that way. Now, I know we talk invisible illnesses. So most mm. of us, they people don't understand what's going on. If anything, I would say it's just a lack of understanding rather than confrontation, meaning mm. people are curious. Some people have actually come up to me if I have a cane, which I will always have when I'm out, mm. and ask me what happened. What did I have an accident? What happened to my leg? They usually like don't understand. Like strangers? Yeah. Like that's people will say rude. like it's none of your business. <laughs> well, that that's my inclination, except I'm too kind and I'm compassionate. So I usually will just say, because somebody is coming out of curiosity, not sure. out of you know, anything. Not out of malice. Else. Right. I'll usually just say I have an autoimmune disease, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it, or I'll just, I won't answer. I don't know. It just depends on my mood, but Fair enough. I'm not, yeah, I, I have had mobility aid when I'm out. And I think if I didn't, yeah, I probably would be more exposed. I yes. think. Yeah. I, th I think so too. Absolutely. Well, that's the kind of thing yeah. that people just if if you're if you don't have a visible signifier it's harder for them to understand we we understand generally speaking the language of disability from the point of view of someone using a wheelchair or a, you know a, a cane or something mm -hmm. like that but when you don't have the mobility aid it makes all the difference but if you're at home and friends come over unless they know yeah. i suppose they don't right. yeah Oh yeah, completely. I had, you know, a recording project one, one year where we were doing an audiobook and I hired voiceover actors and we all rehearsed at my house. Mm. And without anybody knowing stuff about what I was dealing with, you know, people wondered later, I had an interview set up and, and one of the women said, I didn't really know anything was going on, but, you know, I noticed that she sort of hesitated to get up from the couch because she was having a little bit of issue getting up or something. Mm. So when people don't know what's going on, they, they just, you know, everybody's mm. going to act differently. Some people might be curious. Some people might be quiet about it. You just never know. Yeah. I, it is interesting because it does reveal other people's perceptions of uh, a medical disability. system. Yeah. The medical system is a little bit different, right? Well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you about actually, because I, I want to know as a woman going into the medical system with a complex and rare disease while you were diagnosed early on, is that something that, you know, perhaps maybe you've experienced privilege or experienced prejudice in the system because of presenting as female? Or do you think if you'd been a white man, you would have been taken more seriously by certain doctors? How has that looked for you? Well, I have been fortunate in that I've had one chronic care primary physician in my rheumatologist who saw me from 2008 to 17 when she retired. Now, that said, I'm really, she was caring, she was considerate, she was a team, and she cared, like, if I had a suggestion or thought, she, she, asked, you know, like we were trying to work through that or she would be open. What she wasn't open to was any other approaches. So supplements or Eastern technology, like say not technology, you know, Eastern mm. medicine. As an example, if I was going to be taking something like a supplement, she couldn't ever say, this is going to have this effect because it's combined with prednisone or it's combined with methotrexate or it's right. So it was hard to navigate when I was doing some of the Eastern medicine and Western, that's where I found the most difficulty. And then also in the system of nutrition, Western medicine just really does wow. not get nutrition. It's pretty garbage with regard to nutrition. Yes. They get like, when I got out of the hospital, as an example, I had to go see a nutritionist. What was that for? Caloric intake, right? Like things like making sure I got the food groups and calories, not like, oh yes, they realized that I wasn't eating gluten, but that's a preference. They didn't, you know, they don't mm. really make the, the um, connections between yes. So on that note, I would say Western medicine is so focused on managing and treating symptoms and not mm. on the whole person, whereas I've had much more success as I'm finding right in the functional medicine and in alternative yeah. for that aspect, which makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Uh, I also can say for 
acute care. Remember I was saying before, like, mm. I think that's helpful. I have Kaiser. So it's a, a system mm. that I've had for 25 years. I love having Kaiser, to be honest. And I love that I had a doctor that saw me for so long that could sort of manage care because so many things that crop up during DM might be DM or they might be just a cold. And every time mm. something crops up, you have to ask yourself, is this a DM thing? Or is this just a cold, right? This is and the, so, the classic conundrum of a spoon. We all deal with this. Yeah. We, all, we all deal with this. And so I was fortunate in my care to have a rheumatologist who's like, okay, you have a sore throat. I'm giving you this, you know, medicine, blah, 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 to deal with it. And not always kick me to my general practitioner or whatever, you know, like, Anything that was happening, she and I really think that was very helpful. Now that's not necessarily the case. She retired. I have a new, actually, I don't even have a rheumatologist right now. I have an interim one because my next rheumatologist just retired, not retired, but um, left. So I am sort of in limbo. And then the other thing I'll say real quickly is that I tried to get and advocate for um, home infusions because I'm dealing with IVIG. Well, I tried through Kaiser and I needed to go out of network because Kaiser does not offer the type of infusions that I need in at home care. And I needed to go out of network and they wouldn't let me. And so I sent an you know, uh, appeal or whatever. And then that was denied. And then I went through an independent medical review that was also denied. Meanwhile, you're sick the whole say, time. You're waiting the yes, whole time. They say, I get a little bit of this. If you, if you look at the reasoning, I'm not on death's door. I didn't just mm -hmm. have an organ transplant that says I can't get to an infusion center. And the infusion center is open and not, you know, contaminated with COVID, according to them. My own feeling, though, is it's too much of a risk. It's five yeah. days. And I really don't feel comfortable so I will not get a good treatment, number one, because I will not be in a space that I will ever accept that without being so feeling, you know, like I could get this mm. horrible, horrible disease, whatever. Which so, you're also um, at higher risk for because right. of the immune system. Right. I'm, I'm severely immune compromised. Mm. Right. So it's a hard decision. Um, and so I feel like, you know, the health system works for, for patients when you have one doctor, when you have somebody who cares about you when they listen, you know, to your concerns and all that kind of stuff. But no matter what, even when you deal with that, you can tell that the insurance system doesn't necessarily work for patients. Yes, absolutely. I think you're right. I really like that you, you bring that up because it is about the insurance system being the thing that gets in the way of us having more comprehensive care from what you're describing. Absolutely. And let's talk about your advocacy work. Let's pivot into that because um, I mentioned at the top of this interview that you're going to be launching a two-week summit. This is from July 10th to 24th. And you've conducted interviews with many people from practitioners all the way to people like us who are Spoonies um, about, as you said earlier on, thriving with chronic illness. So can you tell us a bit about what that summit's going to look like? Yes. And I'll just give you the quick of, quick of uh, reasoning behind it too. So mm. for me, basically, even after 12 years of living with my illness is what remains, what, what challenges do I still face? I still have issues creating, connecting, and forging and finding community while homebound and with limited energy. Hmm. So I discovered not only do I want to find innovative ways for me to continue to do these things, and creating a summit helps me do that, but also to be a light to others and to inspire others who struggle with chronic illness, as well as loved ones and caretakers to go from like I did, you know, surviving to thriving. So that's really kind of the, the genesis and the reason behind the summit is that, hey, I feel like I have a niche, creativity and healing. And I could share stories and, and help talk about what that is. But that is sort of my area. But right, how would I then be able to share all this other knowledge and so living with chronic illness doesn't come with a set of instructions is what I always right. say. So how can we make shifts in our own health and life? And that's why I said, well, I'm going to ask all these experts, right? Yeah. So I asked, like you said, these 60 experts, what's worked for them and what are their recommendations? And so the experts, um, 
range from anybody between, uh, let's see, alternative practitioners, uh, creative therapists like art, music, and drama, mm. uh, spiritual teachers and healers, artists who battle chronic illness, uh, thought leaders, uh, online support networks. So I'm trying to get this range and medical and mental mm. uh, health professionals. So I'm trying to get this whole range of people. And I wanted to address topics that uh, really reflect what we face. So things like nutrition and spirituality and mindfulness and yoga and meditation and mental health, creative therapies, holistic medicine, even, mm. you know, sexual health, things that don't always come up when we're mm. at the doctor's office or something, right? Because they give you the treatment and the drugs and maybe some physical therapy, but they don't always focus. I never once was prescribed or even recommended to go to a therapist. Not mm, once. Wow. That's, I mean, this is, and this is again, such a common story, isn't it? You know, that that it's such a huge part of our health journey is, is the mental health aspect of it. And yet, because of the way that the American healthcare system is strapped by insurance, you know, often mental health is not thought of as part of the picture when it's a huge part of the picture, especially if you're living with chronic illness. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And maybe mm -hmm. it's that, you know, I'm not showing symptoms or signs of de clinical depression or right because I'm very upbeat <laughs> so yeah, or, yeah. or that I didn't advocate for myself I never said I'd like to right mm -hmm. so having an, a better understanding of what some of these strategies are so you know these these 60 plus speakers are sharing tools and strategies resources practices tips you know guidance uh, all based on their own experiences. And I'm making this a two-week summit. So it's 14 days online. It's all free and it will always be free. It's not mm -hmm. something like some of the summit models where they're like, watch as much as you can in two days and then yes. pay $99 for the package. <laughs> now, I'm not dissing the model. Some, some people it works for, but that's not my model. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make this fully, freely accessible for all. So it's not only is it the videos that I um, recorded, but also there will be live speaker panels. So now I have the opportunity for participants to get on a call with all the speakers who are participating, say 15 to 20 on each week, and be able to do Q&A and like a moderated panel. There's also uh, opportunities for live Facebook special talks. So I'm going to have some speakers not related to these 60. So in addition, uh, come in and talk about things like a chronic illness tracker app, you know, things like that. So it'll engage the group and give opportunities for live community. Uh, there's also live drama therapy workshop. So people can kind of get their hand at what this is like and get their creative juices flowing. Uh, you know, just different things during the summit that really address issues like how to keep an exercise program, you know, what mindfulness and meditation are and how to start a practice, like why practices such as journaling and gratitude are so helpful, right? How do you balance between work and self-care and illness when you have low energy? Why is it important to have a spiritual practice and how to cultivate one? And the, what the things I'm rattling off are things that like I kind of gained and garnered from talking to these different people, mm. right? So just there's such a wealth of information that all of these people have to share. And I just really wanted to freely help other people thrive. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and is this content, as you mentioned, you know, you're providing it uh, free to everyone. Is it also content that's going to be available after these dates in July if people still want to check in if they're not able to attend some of these live sessions? If they register, then absolutely. What's going to happen is it's a paid site where I'm hosting my summit. So what I'm doing is Health Means has actually offered to host all of my videos. And mm. I'm going to have that after the summit be the location, the storehouse. So Amazing. that anybody who wants to can continue to just watch all the videos for, you know, they'll, they'll call it evergreen, meaning it won't come down. But yeah. they won't be on the same exact site as the summit. So what I would just say is register. That way right. you'll get the information. And if you can't watch 60, I get it. You know, people are like, <laughs> there's a lot of different things. Well, there things. might be certain people that you're waiting to tune in for as well. And where would everyone be able to register? Can you uh, give yeah. us a, a web address? Absolutely. So 
uh, number one, before I do, I'll just say this is July 10th through mm. the 24th. And July 10th is actually considered chronic disease awareness day. And that's because seven of every 10 people live with chronic disease in the United States. So if you go seven, 10, you get July 10th. And so oh, they I decided, yeah, they decided to make that chronic disease awareness day. So that's why I'm launching on that day. Mm. And to find the registration, you will probably also have a link I'm assuming. Yes, I'm going to have that on the website for this episode as well. Yeah. Wonderful. So you just go to, the reason I'm saying it is there are dashes between each word. Ah. So to say it, it's how to thrive with chronic illness dot heysummit.com. But there are dashes between each of those. So I just Mm. want you to have the the actual link, but it's how to thrive with chronic illness dot heysummit. Dot com. And I'll yeah. also give you the link for the Facebook group because there, mm. as I mentioned before, during and after the summit, there's a lot of connecting in the group. Mm. And so that will be um, another link that I'll give you. Yeah, fantastic. And we'll have that on the website for this episode as well. So Great. we're kind of sliding into the end stages of this interview. And I like to wrap up with a couple of top three lists. And I wondered if you could Start by giving us your top three tips for someone who maybe already is a Spoonie, maybe they're waiting on a diagnosis and they're in this sort of gray area. What would you recommend to someone who's about to be in this chronic illness world with you and I, um, or living with, with invisible illness? What would you recommend as your top three tips? My top three. So the first one that I always, my go-to is find a trusted disease related agency or organization and a support group and network. So I, fi- I kind of lump them together. Yeah. Because for me, for example, living with myositis, I had to go to find the myositis association. It's somebody who I trust. I can get information and data about disease and treatments. And then I can find support knowing that, hey, there's a keep in touch group that actually in my area. And now, mm. you know, oh, there's a Facebook group online where I can ask questions, you know, from people who've been there and right. And so it's like, you can also uh, check with that organization to see if you can find local chapters, for example, of keep in touch groups. That's number one. Hmm. Number two for me is what I was alluding to, which is grieve. I Hmm. had not, not once during the summit in all of my 60 people, nobody offered that as a strategy. Mm, I was really interesting. Yeah. And I'm not saying that people don't do it. I think mm. people just don't think it's, they don't it, realize they need they to don't realize that it for, or it happens involuntarily. <laughs> it, right. It happens, but like for illness, we often think let's grieve a loss of a loved one. But even while we're going through the pandemic, we're grieving. A lot of us are grieving some people for their loss work, etc. Right. So grieve. I think mm. that's a big thing that it's a big transformation to get a new diagnosis or live with illness. And yeah. it's healthy and understandable to experience a wave of emotions. You know, uh, be kind, be kind to yourself and let yourself feel what you need to feel. And the difference mm. is for me is I just don't allow myself to, to dwell there. I think that's a huge point, though. I think that's really important. The idea that you give yourself maybe a controlled period of time to actually experience the grief. And then you say, okay, I've gone through that. Now time to move forward. You don't sit in victimhood or sadness over it. Yeah. Right. I always say I am not my disease. You know, Mm -hmm. I have my disease, but I'm not my disease. Yes. So then the third one for me is, is uh, read my book. And I say that because I feel like it gives assistance and encouragement and hope. And from people who've shared with me the impact, Mm. it's even people without illness have said to me, after reading this, I am inspired to start this project or to do this or to do that. And so it's not a cookbook. It's (laughs) just an inspirational story that reminds you that even if you live with illness, your dreams don't have to die. You know, there's ways to find, to keep your dreams alive. You know, they may change, but you can still live with passion and joy while you have, you know, an illness. Yeah, I think that's so beautifully said. Now, my last top three list, and I think you'll enjoy this one because you're someone who seems to really live in a very joyful, creative space. I want to know what your top three (laughs) things are in life that give you unbridled joy. So despite the fact that you've obviously had to make adjustments in your lifestyle and the way you eat, in the way you move, and in the way you move through the world in general, um, I'm wondering whether there are 
activities um, that you're completely unwilling to compromise on. So these can be guilty pleasures, they can be secret indulgences, they can be comfort activities when you have a flare up, but they can also just be things that feed you, that make you who you are. What are your top three joyful activities? Hmm. Well, there's a joyful place. It's not necessarily activity. Like another way, I guess it's an activity. Spending time, number one for me, is family. And that means a combination of Dave and my Wirefox Terrier. So my Wirefox is Alice. And she is, she, she actually has been at every infusion with me five days in a row. So she wow. sits She's there. She's a dog. She is. And she sits there and keeps me so calm during infusion. So that's like, she's huge. Uh, and I feel like, you know, Dave is my best friend along with my caretaker. So uh, first and foremost, like if I'm not doing something else, I'm spending time with them and that's my joy place. Mm. Second, as you noted, my creativity place. So it's yeah. creating songs or stories or albums or musicals or films. It's anything that sparks that muse inside me to explore and play. That's the, the, you know, answer. And then I guess my guilty, you know, pleasure or whatever, that kind of a thing, a comfort activity is puzzles. So during COVID and all that, we, Dave and I were doing um, thousand piece. We're on a 2000 piece puzzle that's just wow. sitting there because both of us have been so swamped with things this last couple of weeks. And it's sitting on our dining room table, taking up like the <laughs> whole thing. So puzzles. And then for me, like variety puzzle books that I think, harken back to maybe my the kid inside me sure that used to find like matching games when I was a kid yeah I, I actually really unwind with that mm. kind of stuff um so that those are my comfort place yeah I love that well Lisa it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today and one last time can you tell listeners where to find your work I know we've talked about the link for the summit but please tell everyone where they can find you and they'll also be able to find additional links there Absolutely. So they can find me. Uh, my book is a light in the darkness info. It's also on Amazon and, you know, places like that. And then uh, admuse.com is like kind of my overarching artist website. And so I can give you links for that as well. And then Facebook and Twitter are my go-tos for social networks. And on Facebook, I am admuse music, admuse. And then also on Twitter, I'm admuse. Wonderful. Well, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you today, Lisa. You're, you are, again, such a joyful and ebullient uh, personality to have on. And it's such a wonderful reminder to those of us who are in this spoony space that there's joy on the other side. Uh, when you go through that grieving process, you know, when you've processed everything you're experiencing and feeling, there is joy still to be had. Um, and you're such a great living example of that. And we look forward to tuning in to the summit as well from July 10th to 24th. Thank you so much for telling us all about it and for all the work you do for the community. Thank you so much for having me here. It was a joy to be here. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.